James 5, 1 through 6. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted, and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. We had uh, several of our kids in yesterday for Father's Day celebration and whatnot, and uh, one of them asked me, is there ever a time where you hope people don't visit when you're preaching because of the sermon text? And I'm like, no, never, because the, the Bible's a Bible. Uh, uh, however, there are some caveats that sometimes need to be given. Like, hey, we don't always preach about judgment and money, and don't always preach about it together, like this text is. Uh, so, but we just... We generally just preach what's coming up, and we're ready for James 5, 1 through uh, 6 today, and here we are. You just heard it. It's very strong words. Uh, I didn't write them, so the Lord wrote them, and so we're going to try to make our way through them today. Recently, I was reading about the American uh, theologian and, and intellectual named Langdon Gilkey. Some of you might have read some of his books over the years. Gilkey was... <clears throat> he died in 2004, but he was educated, highly educated man, educated in the first part of the last century. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> Hard when the microphone is taped to your face to do anything about the cough. He was educated at Harvard under, uh, you know, the frame of, of thinking where the academy, the intelligentsia still believed like there was this deep seed of goodness in humanity. In spite of World War I, that was a reset. And uh, you, we don't need religion because humans, they, when the chips are down, they will come together. And during that time, Gilkey says he just lost his faith because of the goodness of humanity uh, and the teaching on the goodness of humanity. Then Gilkey, after he graduated Harvard, went in 1940 to China to teach English on the North China coast. And shortly after he got there, the North, this is in the build-up to World War II, where China was overrun by the Japanese, and Gilkey found himself in an internment camp. So not, a, uh, not like a prison camp, but a terrible camp where you know, thousands of people were in small areas, filthy conditions, and he said that there he lost his faith in the goodness of humanity. <laughs> because when the chips were down, people did not come together. They got actually much worse and selfish and grasping and violent. And he tells a story about how he, he, there were 11 men living in one uh, room, and he was, he was sort of the captain of the room, and they found out that the next room over, there were only nine men living in it. And so they said, hey, would you go talk to those nine so one of the, our guys can go over there? So it'll be 10, so that's fair for everybody. He's like, that's a good idea. He goes to talk to the nine, and then they basically said, sucks to be you, Sorry. Not, it's not our fault that you're living with 11. We, we have nine. We're going to keep what we have. So just humanity was really in the pits, and it led him into a deep despair. But <clears throat> he writes in his memoirs, uh, he writes about one Scottish missionary named Eric Ridgely. 
described him as he was this uh, solitary figure. He writes, Ridgely was overflowing with good humor and love for life and with enthusiasm and charm. It is rare indeed that a person has the good fortune to meet a saint, but he came as close to anyone as I have ever known. And uh, his memoirs were in a chronicle called The Shantang Compound. And it was through this man's life that Gilkey was actually drawn back to faith, just simply by living free when he had no resources. He said he was a constant sort of life and relief and generosity. Originally became the self-appointed youth director of the camp, setting up chess tournaments so the kids wouldn't kill each other. They're just fighting. Uh, square dances, checking in and talking with people, constantly pouring out love and care to those around him and sharing what little he had with others. And then suddenly, originally died of a brain tumor. Um, got sick, got, and then passed away within a couple days. Uh, but his life, Gilkey said, stuck with all the fellow inmates. And he said, I, we don't believe, any of us don't believe that we would have made it psychologically and survived without Ridgely. And he credits Ridgely's life, just this one solitary life of leading him back to faith. So Gilkey raised in the church, it takes a different, like a lot of people today will say, if everybody's not living like Christ, it must not be true. Gilkey's like, hey, this one person's living like Christ, therefore it can be true. And he was led back to faith in Christ by this one person who was free, Eric Ridgely, whose wealth had nothing to do with money. He had nothing. Nobody had anything. And I just wonder what it's like to, you know, if we can imagine being that free, to have a freedom or an internal source that's not related to any external resources. The truth of the gospel, of course, is that in Christ, we are actually that free. In Jesus, we actually are that free. And there's a war, as you heard, if you're paying attention, a strong warning in the text today. But that warning is actually sort of the backside of something that's very good news. That we have incredible wealth in Jesus. And that incredible wealth is Jesus. He gives himself to us. And that allows us in Christ to actually take any other resources in our life, any wealth in our life, and use that for blessing other people and not in craven fear hoard it to ourselves. So the idea that we're driving at today is that Jesus satisfies us with the riches of his own self, with the riches of grace, so that we may steward all other riches well. Jesus satisfies us with the riches of grace that we may steward all other riches well. 2 Corinthians 8, I put this in your insert. This is encouraging the people to give during a time of famine. Paul writes, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Christ makes himself nothing. He takes on flesh and he makes himself nothing. He is actually physically and materially impoverished. And he makes himself nothing, takes, takes on the poverty of our own sin, that in him we might become the richest of all people and the freest of all people. That we have untold internal resources from the Spirit to live freely in this world, whatever the external resources we have or don't have are. On the front of your insert each week, we put a uh, pre-service reflection 
out of curiosity, not today, but in general, how many people read the pre-service reflection? Okay, that's encouraging. That's encouraging. Uh, I'll take half. I'll take that. We'll keep doing it. And we actually think about this a little bit. Sometimes it connects to the sermon, sometimes not. On the front today is a passage from a book that shaped me profoundly, but then I, I'm going back and reading it now, realizing it just didn't stick. I'm like Teflon, right? It's this great missional thinking, but I kind of forget. Michael Goheen, this brilliant missiologist I had a, as a professor, writes this. The members of the church of the first three centuries A.D., living in the midst of a pagan and often hostile Roman Empire, defined themselves as resident aliens. The primary sense of this is that of redemptive tension between the church and its cultural context. These early Christians understood themselves to be different from others in their culture and lived together, and here's the phrase, as an alternative community nourished by an alternative story. They lived together as an alternative community nourished by an alternate story, the story of the Bible that was impressed on its followers in the process of catechism the entire catechetical process had this pastoral purpose to empower distinctive people shaped by the story of the Bible. And I would submit to you that's still the story of the gospel for us today. Called together to live in this world, but to live in fellowship with one another, gathered together on Sundays, nourished by an alternate story, the story of the gospel of the kingdom of God. That brings to us the news that we have incredible wealth in Christ. That frees us then to go back into our world and live as if we have that wealth because we do, though it's easy to forget. On the, we are calling this series in James, which we're almost done with now, James is a short book, Wisdom for Dissidents. Dissidents are those who live contrary to the prevailing message of the age. We are dissenting from the dominant narratives of our age. Dominant narratives are something like this. We have to have more. We have to have more money, more resource. How much? Just a little bit more. We have to have more. We have to get it. We have to keep it. And by the way, if somebody else has more, we should either... Envy them or criticize them because they must have done something wrong, right? And so this, we live in this swirling narrative of money and resource in the richest country in the history of the world, and it makes it hard to figure out. So uh, our calling then, I think, our, one of our missional callings as God's people for our world is simply to live free and to give our neighbors the gift of seeing people who actually are free because they have great internal wealth in Christ. James 5, verse 1. These are strong words, right? Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Right? You rich. Now, who is this talking about? This is a, this actually a really hard to figure out in this passage who James is addressing. Is he talking to people who are sort of Christians in that church who are rich? Maybe, but at this point in James, he actually changes the language. All the way through, he's been saying, brothers, brothers, brothers. Now he's like, you rich. <laughs> so maybe it's that. Uh, more likely, this is judgment. This is like a judgment oracle against wealthy oppressors. It sounds like something you'd hear at Amos or Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. Have, all have those where the prophets uh, calling down judgment on wealthy oppressors of God's people, be that individuals or surrounding nations or kings or whatever. <clears throat> uh, and so 
it could be that he's giving this judgment so the people of God who are usually at this point poor and oppressed would be like, that's right, we're not alone here. The Lord is paying attention, and he is pretty frustrated These people are making life hard for us. Remember, they're under persecution. So we're going to be talking about money just a little bit. Now, two caveats here. One is an economic disclaimer. It is really, it's hard to do the, the hard work of application of the Bible often, and this is one of those places. This was a land-based economy. We live in a market-based economy. This is very different. And so it is, there is no way to make a one-for-one comparison uh, or application to the wealthy of that day and the wealthy of our day. I know Christians have done that, and therefore, like, all wealthy people are bad and all that kind of stuff. That's just bad Bible reading, right? We live in a market-based economy um, where, you know, in a land-based economy, everything is fixed. It actually is a zero-sum game. That is not the case. Now we live in a world where it is possible for people, everybody, to continue to grow in wealth as the market grows, right? It's not perfect, but it's kind of working. As Churchill said about democracy, it's the worst form of government, except for every other one. I think you could probably say... Free markets is the best, is the worst economic system, except for every other one, right? Every other one where government and state starts to control things, it goes badly and lots and lots of people die over and over again. And then another generation rises up, forgets it, and a lot of people die all over, over again. So um, more people have been lifted out of poverty in the last 50 years than other, any other point in history, and it's because of the market. So I don't hear me say what I'm not saying, okay? Uh, that's one caveat. The second is... Money is still one of the chief idols in our culture, along with sex and power. Therefore, it is probably the hardest to see in our own life. I don't want, to, I don't want my idols to be attacked. I don't want the Scripture to come and press in, so we are apt to push away what Scripture has to say about these idols. So whoever this is talking to, we do know, I think we all know, that there are dynamics in our own heart about resources and fear of resources and longing for more resources so we can be attentive to what it has to say. Weep and howl, he says, for the miseries that are coming upon you. What miseries? Is this talking about final destruction? Maybe, but it's probably something else first. There were no banks in those days. There were no banks in the ancient Near East. So you hid your money in a field. Jesus talks about parables like that. You hired armed guards and hoped that they didn't rob you and all that kind of stuff. But in Jerusalem, it was common for wealthy people to put their money in the Jerusalem temple. So you could buy banking space in the temple for a couple reasons. One, it was a sacred place and, you know, other people weren't going to break in because it's God's house and there were armed guards just in case people thought they might. So you could you could place your money for safekeeping in the temple. The one thing they didn't think about is the Romans didn't care about that at all. In AD 70, they march into Jerusalem, they lay siege to Jerusalem, and then destroy it and take all the money out of the temple. All of it's gone. So in one single day, all the wealthy people in Israel lose everything. Not the market's down, not it was a bad quarter. They had everything, and the next day they had nothing, and it was on its way back to Rome. They said they weren't going to do anything about it. So that's what was coming upon them. Maybe, you know, it wasn't there yet, but it was coming. And linguists tell us that these are very intense words of deep passion and crying out, right? My life is over because my wealth is gone. I'm going to die. 
If your hope is in that, that is the response to the wealth being removed. If your help is in resource, the, the, when it gets removed or gets threatened, we're like, our life is over. Now, none of us would say, my life is in my money. My life is in my resource. We wouldn't say that. However, when it's often, when, how often are we thinking, like, how can I get more? How can I get more? How often are we fearing, what if it goes away? What if it goes away? How often are we actually giving our life to pursue it? Or giving the life of our family to pursue it? When we probably have plenty if we adjust it. Now, one of the things that's frustrating about the way the Lord talks about money is he doesn't give a lot of specifics. And I think that's because we're in relationship with him and we actually have to do business with God and wrestle and pray and seek his face in community and have open hands before him and say, Lord, help me understand. Is it likely that we'll have understanding without that? It is not. It is not. So we beware. Ecclesiastes 5.10 says, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money. I'll put that in your insert. Actually, the rest of that verse says, he who loves wealth will never be satisfied with his income. This too is vapor or futility. Wealthiest man, the turn of last century, John D. Rockefeller, Standard Oil Company, uh, owned 90% of oil production and usage in the United States. At one point, his at the height of his wealth, his personal wealth was 3% of the GDP of America. To put that in perspective, that's twice as wealthy as Elon Musk, five times as wealthy as Jeff Bezos, and seven times as wealthy as Bill Gates. A wealthy man. I'm not saying he was a bad guy, very philanthropic, was asked by a reporter famously, uh, Mr. Rockefeller, how much is enough? And many of you know what he said. He said, just a little bit more. Just a little bit more. He who loves money will never be satisfied with money. And so the warning to the rich here is to weep and wail because they're going to get destroyed. And that hadn't come yet. That destruction for them was yet future to the writing of this. But the danger of it, that, of that future destruction, had worked back into the present in their own souls. The problem of money here in this, in this passage is twofold in the human soul. It creates a vertical problem and it creates a horizontal problem. First, the vertical problem. Verse 2. Your riches have rotted, and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Jesus, of course, Matthew 6, warns us. That's familiar language. He says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. He's warning these folks who are wealthy, your wealth has already rotted. You can go ahead, it looks fine, but it's already rotting. It's already rusted and corroded. Your garments are already moth-eaten. Now, were they? No. Here's what we need to know. This is a phrase in Jewish wisdom literature in the first century, corroded and rusted riches and moth-eaten garments, is a phrase for wealth that was hoarded and put away and not used to bring blessing to the covenant community. Right? Gold and silver don't rust. They're not ferrous metals. They can't 
rust. It's a phrase that means wealth that's been hoarded and not used unto the blessing of others in the covenant community. That's what it means. In the Old Testament, which shaped all of this background, and Jesus, you remember Jesus just calls the Old Testament the Scripture. God gives resources for us for three reasons. To use, to enjoy, and to aggressively bless other people. To use, to enjoy, and to aggressively bless others with. Uh, Garments in those days were very expensive. It was a luxury to have multiple days of clothes. Now, I know I can, I pull out my underwear drawer and I got like eight weeks of underwear. Like, how does that happen, right? We're Americans. This is how it happens. Um, And you never throw anything away and we don't really have moths that eat our clothes anymore. So probably all of us in here have at least a week's worth of clothing that you could wear. You wouldn't smell too bad and you don't have to do laundry, right? We just have to understand that was totally, that would be very rare in the first century. Clothing, by comparison, was much more expensive than it is now. So having multiple garments, so many that moths would eat, because you didn't wear them very often, would be very rare, a sign of extreme wealth. It's probably not that these were moth-eaten now, or they would have thrown them out. It's just a sign of saying, you've got, you've got so much, and here's what you do with that. You want more. And you're not reaping the benefit of blessing other people with it, which is why I've given it to you. This is what's being communicated here. You have laid up, it says, treasure in the last days. Now, the NIV translates that hoarded, hoarded. That's unnecessarily laying something up. So, question, what is the difference between unfaithful hoarding of resources and faithful saving of resources, which the Bible commends? Answer, God doesn't give us a line. Isn't that great? Isn't it great when the Bible creates problems that only Jesus can solve in our life? Like we have to go and actually ask him. Now, can I encourage you? See, great. I don't know anything about anybody's finances except my own. And I'm barely keeping up with that. Wrestle with God about your finances. We live with unprecedented wealth. Probably even those among us who feel like, oh, I'm just barely getting by, if we would just do a mission trip to a third world country, we would grow in our thanksgiving. Let's deal with the Lord with our resources. Let's lay them before him and say, Lord, help me to see clearly here. Now, I know what happens, right? Because there's not clear lines, we're like, well, I guess we'll just do what we want. That's not the reason there's not a clear line. There's not a clear line, so we actually are in relationship with God about these important things right where we live, like the dollars and cents. First Timothy 6 I think this is a helpful thing just to read here. Godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. And down in verse 17, as for the rich in this present age, that might be all of us in some way. Charge them not to be haughty, not to be arrogant, which is, by the way, I think, remember last week, saying, I know what the future is going to be like. 
right? That's, that's arrogance. Charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. So the, if, if we are the, those who are counted among the wealthy, if you've got more than three or four pairs of underwear in your drawer, probably there, what are we to do? Uh, let's not set our hopes on the uncertainty of riches. We call that worry, anxiety. Uh, enjoy what God has provided. He richly provides everything to enjoy. Let's actually enjoy first what we have, maybe before we say, I think I need something else. Right? Let's enjoy deeply what we have. Not saying that something else isn't, something else is bad. Not saying that being wealthy is bad. Many of faithful people in Scripture were wealthy. But first enjoy what we have and then be rich in good works. Part of the problem with hoarding too many resources is that we lose the privilege of seeing them blessing other people. If you desire to be rich... If you desire to be rich, the Bible says this is a heart condition. Now, I know you want to be rich so that you can bless other people. I've heard that so many times. Okay, cool. How about this? Focus on blessing other people. Okay? Desire to bless other people with your talents and your gifts and your business building strategies. That's great. Bless other people. If the Lord adds wealth, thank him for it. Desire to be rich leads us to a snare. Let's be honest with our own hearts here. Uh, There will be a day when that richness is unnecessary. I mean, it's no small, I mean, it shouldn't escape our notice in Revelation 21-21 that New Jerusalem is paved with gold. It is common, like pavement. in In the next chapter, all those hoarded things become pavement. It creates a vertical challenge with our life when it becomes our treasure. Also a horizontal danger. Look at verse 4. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvester have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. So this is probably why we think he's actually, it's like an oracle of condemnation against the wealthy oppressors here. In the Old Testament, you had to pay people at the end of the day. Day laborers got paid at the end of the day because people were living day to day. And it was illegal not to do that. But here, these wealthy folks are not paying at the end of the day. And nobody can make them because they have the resources. And the people without the resources have no ability to make them do that. That's why we need laws, actually, that protect people without resources in every nation. They need that, right? So don't oppose laws that actually are built to, uh, to protect the most vulnerable. That's what the laws are for, right? Because without those, those who have more resources, because of sin, will eventually oppress other people, right? Uh, These folks were willing to use people in the path of pursuing wealth. To treat them if they existed for the furthering of their own comfort and luxury. Now, probably none of you are landowners that are paying day laborers and are supposed to pay them at the end of the day and are not doing so. Maybe if you're doing that, stop that and pay them what they owed, right? (laughs) 
Seems odd. Um, but like maybe, maybe press that down if you're an employer. Are we treating our people as people right? and not commodities, not resources? You know, there's always, every big company has a human resources department. I don't know. That's like, thanks, I'm a resource for you. <laughs> it could be human-human departments probably would be better. But um, if you're a manager, are you blessing your people? Or are we treating them as means to make us money and the company money? Not, not that those are mutually exclusive. Are we treating them as people? We treat them as people first. Why? Because we're not a commodity to the Lord. He's treated us people. He's given his life for people. He gave his personal life for people. So in God's economy, people cannot be commodified as means to our comfort, whether that's wives or husbands, or children, or employees, right? Now, nearly every commentator I read, that last verse there, you have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Nearly every commentator I read said that is at least a veiled and passing reference to the one righteous person who did not utter a word of his own defense, Jesus himself. As if to say, this earthbound way of thinking that's zero-sum and that commodifies people and says, I have to have just a little bit more, just a little bit more, just a little bit more, and deeply fear the threat of it taking away. That is as if it's co-participating in the structures of evil that crucified Jesus. This is not a way of thinking of the people of God. The good news is we get to live in an alternate story. Friends, if you're in Christ, you are profoundly wealthy. Or another way to say, all you have if you have Jesus is Jesus. Everything. The creator. The son of the most high God. The one who gives us all things we need for life and godliness. The one whose future is our future. The one who took our past. In him in whom we have an inheritance we can't even imagine. Let me just give you some practical, consider, practical considerations. This is tacked on. I really wasn't complete in what I wanted to say this morning. So, and I had another hour. I'd woven this in somewhere, but now it's just at the end. Here we go. If you want to, look, we, in God's providence in this congregation, we have many people who are well employed. I'm thankful for that. You guys are kind of generous. Like we have, you know, our, um, the, the budget's put in the, the bulletin each week, and we're not quite up to date this week. We're actually a little bit ahead, which is great, which is great. I think Taylor mentioned a couple weeks ago, the average North American Christian gives about 2.4% of their income um, to anywhere. That means that um, for the average American Christian, money is still their treasure and Jesus is not. This is no other way to say it. I'm not saying that for everybody here, but... Um, I want to, just some practical considerations. I would say this, this is for my family too. Confess our propensity to hoard and fear. Confess our propensity to treat money as a substitute savior. Now, let's be honest. Like money is a pretty good secondary savior if you don't have Jesus. You might as well be rich if you don't have Jesus, right? Because it can get you a lot of stuff. Uh, also get you hell without Jesus. So be, be careful. Um, we could confess our propensity to hoard and fear because we're human people. Plan to give generously. Plan to give generously. Um, 
though we don't have like bright lines, the scripture does give us a, some teaching that gives us enough light to begin to see. And that is the scriptural guideline of tithing. Tithing. Tithing means 10%. Now, I, we say this often. I'll say it again here. I don't know how much anybody gives. It's just my family alone. We've, I voluntarily, Taylor and I don't know how much people give. And what I will have said for years is, I love you, and I don't want money to have a grip on your soul, so give 10% of it away. I don't care where you give it. You don't have to give it to the church. Now, in truth, I'll come over and say, you probably should tie 10% to the local church and just give above and beyond everywhere else, okay? But I don't, because I love you, I don't care where you give it. I don't want it to have a grip on your soul. I don't want it to have a grip on your soul. And I think you can make a pretty good case, and I love you, and I don't know how much anybody's giving. Friends, if you are not giving away at least 10% of your money, it has a grip on your soul. It has a grip. And you may not be able to do that right now, although it probably is a lot less hard than you think it is to do that right now. Just reshuffle everything else that you're buying, right? You know, uh, everybody's getting rid of Netflix right now. That's like 15 bucks a month. You just saved, right? Um, and I say, again, I say that out of love for you. Just look at Malachi 3. Just ask the Lord and say, hey, what, is, what does he say Malachi 3? It's, it's a, it is a shockingly stark dare God makes. He's like, Breathe the whole, bring the whole tithe in the storehouse and see what I'll do. Let me just see. My people, see what I do if you do that. Okay. Let me encourage you too. This is something we struggle with because like, you know, at one time I was a pastor. We had five kids at home. And like, that was like, where's that extra nickel to send our kids to the Oaks Academy, right? Um, and then our kids started leaving. You know what happens when your kids start leaving? They get less expensive. It's great. They get married. They get less expensive after the wedding, right? So it's great. Oh, my goodness. And now we got one kid at home. He got one year of school left. And then, uh, you know, it was one kid off, went off school. Carmen went back to work. Like, oh, now we got another income. Here's the temptation for our lifestyle to grow as fast as our income. Oh, that's dangerous. I would encourage you to think about this, people of Jesus. Not that your lifestyle can't grow, but I would encourage you not to allow your lifestyle to keep pace with your income growth as God blesses you. Let that gap grow a little bit. I'm not saying you can't. You know, we moved from having... 20-year-old cars to having 8-year-old cars, right? I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. You can even buy a new car if you can pay cash for it and you want to pay outrageous payments. But um, don't, I just don't let it grow. Just because the world does, like we live in a different story. We have incredible wealth and we can use that excess that our lifestyle will be growing with to bless other people in lots of different ways. So confess propensity to hoard, plan to give generously, ask for wisdom from the Lord. There is no shortcut to that. And then thank God for the pleasurable things we have. We have taste buds. We can taste amazing food. We have eyes to see beautiful things. We can feel things like, thus be deeply thankful for what the Lord has given us first. Right? And I want to encourage you, if you're, especially if you're younger, to do this now. To do this now. Because it has a way of creating good, deep ruts in our own heart. It leads to incredible freedom in our life to pursue things and not have to have them. One of my favorite movies is the movie Chariots of Fire, which seems old and kitschy now, and the, the soundtrack may be like kind of old if you listen to it. Anybody seen Chariots of Fire? Yeah, good. It's about two uh, Olympic athletes from the United Kingdom in 1924 Olympics, Harold Abrams and Eric Liddell. 
And it, this, this whole thing tracks these two runners, and they're both 100-meter runners. And they meet one time before the Olympics, and Liddell beats Harold Abrams. That's not in the movie, but in history. And so it's, uh, Abrams is this driven guy. He's hard, and he's driven, and he's fast. And Eric Liddell is this free uh, Scottish kid who is a Christian. And in the movie, Liddell finds that the finals of the 100 meters is going to be on a Sunday. Well, he's a Scottish Presbyterian, so he's like, I'm not running. I'm not running it on Sunday. Right? And they try to convince him. He's like, cool, good idea. I'm not running. <laughs> and uh, so that opens the, the way for Abrams to run. And uh, at Abrams, this is all he's wanted his entire life is to win the 100 meters. It's his goal. It's his dream. That's, he loved it. And at the end of the movie, he's won the 100 and he's miserable. Because all that he wanted, it could not satisfy. In seeing this, uh, in seeing Liddell give up his spot at the 100, another person let him run the 400 in his place. And Eric Liddell wins the 400 meters. It's a true story. In the 1924 Olympics. He'd been a 400 meter runner before, but he won it in the Olympics. And he said this when he came back. He said, it has been a wonderful experience to compete in the Olympic Games and to bring home a gold medal. But since I've been a young lad, I've had my eyes on a different prize. You see, each one of us is in a greater race than any I've run in Paris. And this race ends when God gives out the medals. That, so he was a relatively young man then, created a deep rut in his heart. Ruts and, and marks of the freedom that's in Christ. It's good to learn that when we're young because it pays dividends when we're old. Langdon Gilkey in his memoirs, The Shantung, Shantung Compound, found that the people acted so badly that if he wrote his memoirs and used their real names, it would embarrass everybody. So he changed the names of everybody, changed the last names of everybody, even the person who was that saint that he met, Eric Ridgely. After the 1924 Olympics, uh, Eric Liddell finished school and went back to where he was born to missionary parents in Tianjin, China, on the North China coast, where in 1940, he too was arrested by Japanese and put into an internment camp. Eric Ridgely was actually Eric Liddell, whose heart was formed by Christ when he was young, so that he could see these things that everybody else wanted and say, I will take them as they come, but they will not be my treasure. Christ is my treasure. And that solitary life of freedom 